just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Take me to the king. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kelly Richardson Lawson. I'm a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. I started the Sunrise Project after our beautiful teenage son attempted to take his own life. Truth is, I'm tired. My husband and I felt despair, isolation, and immeasurable pain. I knew in my heart we needed a place for Black parents to share their struggles, find mutual support, and help our beloved children who struggle with mental wellness, addiction, or both. Each weekly podcast features an expert who shares their knowledge and takes questions from parents and children. Take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. The Sunrise Project allows Black families, like ours, to find comfort in knowing that we are not alone. While the purpose of the Sunrise Project is to share, support, and uplift, this conversation is not a substitute for medical advice. Finding the right healthcare professional for your family's specific needs is crucial. If you do not feel seen or heard, you should speak to more than one professional to find the right fit. Take me to the Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to our weekly Sunrise Project call. As always, I'm so happy that you're all here with us this morning, where we find a moment of solace as we work together to heal ourselves, our families, and our children. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This morning, we have a very special guest. It's her first time here with us on the Sunrise Project. Her name is Dr. Marie Smith-East. She is a highly accomplished, board-certified, psychiatric nurse practitioner and nurse scientist. Her research focuses on geographic access to health care, particularly for individuals with schizophrenia spectrum disorders. She runs her own telemedicine practice, and she has extensive experience working in community mental health settings, where she has contributed to curriculum and policy development as a clinical instructor and facilitator. She is an alumni of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program, and she has presented for the National Institute of Mental Health, also known as NIMH. In her spare time, Dr. Smith-East enjoys volunteering with the on-call team of the Schizophrenia and Related Disorders Alliance of America, and she was the recipient of its 2019 Volunteer of the Year Award. She also serves on the Addictions Council of the American Psychiatric Nurses Association and the Salvation Army Advisory Board in her local community. 
I am just so in awe of you and so happy that you're here. This morning, Dr. Marie Smith-East is going to help all of us understand treatment options and how to best advocate for our loved ones. Thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna turn it over to you now. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Um, good morning, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Just speaking with parents, caregivers, families, patients, it's something that I'm so passionate about. Um, and really it's because of all of the experiences that I've had working as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner in practice. Um, a lot of my experiences have been in community mental health. And so I've seen a lot of health disparities that truly do exist. And I've seen a lot of issues that I feel parents are just not necessarily sure how to navigate. And honestly, I recently had um, an MRI done for like back pain and just navigating the medical system in general. I'm like, I should know this. I'm a nurse. And I'm like, it was a complete nightmare. So I can't even imagine for any individuals that have any issues in terms of mental health or substance use disorders, and they're trying to get treatment, it can be very frustrating. And then put that on top of that, um, at, at say if you have a patient or a family member that doesn't even want treatment, that makes it even more difficult. So um, my goal this morning is really to just share um, some of my experiences, some options for treatment, things that you might not have ever thought of or approaches that you might not have considered. Again, this is just my experiences, um, my opinions about this. And again, I would highly recommend after we have this conversation, of course, you guys can ask questions um, following up with a medical provider. So I don't want you like, well, I went and spoke and Dr. Smithy spoke to me and she said this was the gospel. So I want to make sure that after this, that I hope you feel empowered to ask those questions that maybe you never thought of before or never had that perspective from a psychiatric nurse that could tell you that, hey, this is what I've, I've experienced and have had good success. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. So to start, what got me really revved up and passionate um, about helping patients specifically with schizophrenia spectrum disorders, and that's my area of research. I was working in a community mental health center and a patient came in, he's 22 years old. He actually lost both of his parents to substance um, use disorders and came in and he said to me, um, I'm so sorry, Ms. Marie, that I got Baker Acted. So in Florida, they call involuntary hospitalization a Baker Act. And depending on what state you live in, it can be called something else, but in Florida, it's called a Baker Act. So he's like, I'm so sorry I got Baker Acted. Um, I ran out of peanut butter to make my sandwich to make to take my medication. So the medication of the patient's referring to, it's an antipsychotic medication that actually requires 350 calories in order to work. Now, that's a big deal. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure if many providers are 100% aware that that medication does not work if you do not take it with at least 350 calories. So, and why I say that is because I've had a few patients where one patient in particular was on a really high dose of Latuda and a really high dose of another antipsychotic medication called Geodon 
both require food and a specific amount of calories in order to be effective. And when you ask them, hey, how's your appetite? And they're like, appetite, I haven't been eating. Or one of my patients, he didn't want to take a shower. He felt like hands were grabbing at him when he was taking the shower. Um, He's like, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And I'm looking at his medications and I'm like, looking at your medications, it should be working. And I asked him about his appetite and he's like, I don't have an appetite. I'm like, well, that's why the medication isn't working. And so they had him on really, really high doses of this medication. And literally I just changed it. I put him on something that doesn't require food. And the next time I saw him, he was getting better. So going back to my 22 year old, I thought about that. I, I went home that day and I was like, wow, somebody on his journey told him, hey, for this particular medication, eat a peanut butter sandwich and that'll help you um, to stay compliant or whatever it was. So it's crazy to me that your interactions in this life that we live, right? I always say my mantra is you're in the right place at the right time speaking to the right people, right? Um, At least that's what I believe, right? And we can go even more on a higher power. So for this particular patient, he has no idea that he completely changed my whole career trajectory because I was like, wow, like here it is. His support system was the community mental health center. Somebody, a social worker, somebody on his journey told him that that was what he needed to take. Sometimes providers are not perfect, right? We were trying to help. We're trained to be a specific way. But not everybody considers the social factors. We just say, oh, we label them as, oh, they're non-compliant or the new buzzword is um, not being adherent to treatment. And they never really take the time to consider, well, what are all of the contributing factors? It doesn't necessarily mean that that person or that child came from a bad family, right? Oh, they don't have any support or da, 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 da. Because a lot of times, at least from my experiences, the patients have support. They have, or they may have a part of the illness that we call not having insight into their illness. There's actually a term for it that refers to patients that have maybe bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, and due to having bipolar or um, schizophrenia, they're not able to see that, hey, I actually have an illness. So that's why a lot of times you'll see patients they'll start taking medications, they'll get better. And then they'll be like, oh, I don't need to take it anymore. (laughs) You know, and then it becomes this vicious cycle. Just some quick statistics. Um, The new term that we refer to, instead of saying minority populations or underserved populations, the mental health community now refers to patients as Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So you might've heard of that before, BIPOC. And it's just a term that we use to be um, more specific and inclusive because Sometimes when we refer to Black uh, African-Americans as marginalized or minorities, we tend to perpetuate negative images and stereotypes because it doesn't necessarily mean that we're, we're not um, trying to get treatment or, or all of that, so, or we're excluding other people that are of color. So the term is Black, Indigenous, and people of color, it's BIPOC. That's a newer term that mental health community is using. So just a few statistics. According to Mental Health America 2021, BIPOC groups are less likely to have access to mental health services, less likely to seek out treatment, more likely to receive low or poor quality of care, and more likely to end services early. And when they think about, they look at the research and say, okay, well, what is contributing to that? Belief systems, sociodemographic factors, cultural stigma about mental illness, systemic racism. So now we're seeing in the media a lot that people are now looking outside of, well, you know, when we have these studies, well, Black people this or race this, da-da-da. Really what we're talking about is systemic racism, right? 
So looking at that and discrimination, language barriers, yeah, finances and or lack of health insurance, and really a distrust of the healthcare system. One other story that I wanted to share, I had a patient that this, it was a, a wife and husband couple that came in. The wife said, my, my husband hasn't been acting the same for um, a while now, and I can't put my finger on it. And I looked at his treatment plan and he was prescribed an antidepressant medication. And when I was looking at the previous provider's notes that was no longer working at the clinic, she put that, oh, patient is quiet, um, puts his head down, so he must have depression. It's pretty much what she said. And the wife is saying, I kept telling that provider every time when I went in that, no, there's something more going on. Sometimes I see him speaking to himself. Um, he just seems like in his own world, but she seems to think it's depression. And the, this medication just is not working. The patient had schizophrenia. And I mean, I started him on an antipsychotic medication. And sure enough, I would say just in a, two weeks, basically, patient was more verbal, more interactive. I even ran into him um, out at uh, where I, I live in Florida. So we ran out into this area where they have like, um, like a beach uh, set up area where you can just go out and listen to music and stuff like that. I ran into them at the place and she's like, he hasn't been out in a crowd in years. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, so another thing. Sometimes providers don't even listen to what you're saying. So I'm saying this not to bash my counterparts or not to say that I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I'm just saying that our approach to care, especially now, even since COVID, the COVID pandemic and all of that really needs to be focused on being more patient centered and really listening to the patient's voice and the family's voice and looking at what we call the social determinants of health. I think sometimes we talk a big game about, oh, yeah, 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 we're doing it. But in, in reality, what really are we doing? So a few things in terms of approaches to treatment. A lot of times you'll see a lot of research out there. Even if you Google, like, how do I keep a family member that started on medication? How do I keep them on it? And the, next, the, the first thing that they'll say is put them on an uh, injectable medication, right? To be honest with you, the injectable medications have come a very long way. We now have medications that you they used to be like, you could take one every two weeks, like of a shot. Um, it's like an antipsychotic medication. So you don't have to worry about is my son, my daughter, whatever, taking it every day, because sometimes if they're not taking their medications every day, their symptoms are up and down one day, they're having to get it just all over the place. And so a lot of times they encourage um, you to be on an injectable medication. That way you can ensure that it's working. So they've come a long way. They used to have one that's, well, they still do one that you take every two weeks. They have a couple that you can take monthly. And now they even have one that you can take once every three months and another one that you can take once every two months. And I've had really good success even during COVID. I've run my own telemedicine practice where the pharmacy sends out a nurse that comes to the patient's home to give them their injection. So again, this is just thinking outside of the box of like, how can I get treatment for a family member? Involuntary hospitalizations. A lot of the times families don't necessarily want to call the police because you see in the news, there were, there were, oh, I called the police and they're supposed to be helping me and my family member ended up, the one that needed help ended up getting shot, right? So a lot of times my patients are not like, if I'm like, okay, it's an emergency, call the police. They're like, no, nah, we're not calling the police. And I understand that. And what's interesting in Miami, there's a judge and he is a very adamant proponent about approaching mental health treatment where 
if you call the police, it's not a police officer necessarily that's coming out. It's a treatment team of different providers that comes out. I've heard him speak a few times about what he's trying to do, even in Miami-Dade County, to make changes because he sees the, the concern of, well, I don't want my child to end up in the system. And if, if it ended up being that they did something like, you know, it could be anything. They, maybe they might have assaulted someone or whatever the case may be. His program has it so that if you get treatment, whatever it was that you were charged with, they'll either be expunged or it'll be like a lesser charge. And you would think that, oh, in society, that's already how it's being done. It's not. It, it, it really isn't. And, and it's really kind of location-based too. Some areas may be more forgiving than others. So I'm mentioning, I'm mentioning this again to give hope and to bring the idea of getting more of the word out there and that there are people out there that see that there are these disparities or these, there's these things that are going on, especially within the criminal justice system. And we're trying to figure out, you know, just because you have a mental illness and you're, you're in crisis doesn't mean that you're a criminal. Does that make sense? So that's an interesting program that they are starting or they have started already in Miami. And I know that they have another one also in Tennessee. So hopefully we keep getting the word out and being an advocate um, that that can continue. Another option that I wanted to mention too, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I've had patients been be on a million different medications and they'll say nothing is working. Um, a new thing that has been getting more attention is what we call genetic testing. There's two companies that do the genetic testing right now. And it's a simple thing. They just swab your mouth and it goes into a package and it gets mailed into their, their lab. And it gives you a printout of which antipsychotic medications, which anti-anxiety medications, which antidepressant medications may, may work best for you based on your genetics. So a lot of times, if I have a patient that is hesitant about meds or they had a really bad experience with one or two or three or four or five meds, they become a little bit more open to, okay, maybe I'll try something if I'm able to do the genetic testing. And um, what's cool about it is if you don't have insurance to cover it, they have um, like a compassionate care program where you only end up paying like $25 for it or it ends up be being free. It's just, you have to inquire about it. Like if you're, hey, then those are the two major companies that do it. Is there controversy around that? Yes. Some doctors say, oh, um, I don't feel like we need to do genetic testing because we're going to try a million medications anyway. So why waste the time? But just from my experiences with, with a lot of my patients, I'll have a patient say, oh, Abilify gave me this side effect. I'm like, I've never heard of that side effect before. And then I do the genetic testing. And sure enough, they were right that that medication came up as one of them, that one of the meds that would more than likely cause a lot of interaction side effects just based on, on their genetics. Yes. What else did I want to say? Can you just add a little bit more on that whole piece around genetic testing? Because you said it's controversial, but do you really believe it's really worth it? And then if you want a doctor to do it, how would you go about doing it? Very good questions. It's only controversial because it's still fairly new. So there's not enough research. But in all honesty, even if you go on, I just went on their website recently, like GeneSight, they have now started putting out studies where they've tested it. So, and you can actually see the, the research on their websites. So the controversy lies in that when you get this printout that tells you genetically which medication may work better for you, 
the, a lot of doctors are saying, well, why even go through that? That's wasting my time going through that process of having to now do it and then go through the list. Okay, maybe these are all in the green. So let's try these medications. When in reality, I could just try it like I normally do. We're going to try different medications. So I don't need to go and run that test. So it could be a little bit of a pride thing where, hey, why am I wasting my time? But again, we're talking about patient involvement, like patient adherence. The patient is a member of the treatment team. The thing about psych is the days of compliance, which it's, it's really paternalistic, meaning you say, I say you have to take the medication as your doctor, you better take the medication. Those days are kind of gone to the wayside. Nowadays, if you want patients to comply, they have to feel like an active member of the treatment team. They have to feel that you're listening to them. They have to feel that whatever medication that they're taking is working. Another strategy that I've used with some patients that are so hesitant about medications, I'll say, are you sleeping? Are you getting a good, good night's rest? And a lot of times they'll say no, or they might be having nightmares or, hey, I, I, you feel irritable all the time. And, and sometimes they're like, yeah, I do feel irritable all the time. And I'll start with that. Like a lot of times they're prescribing these medications and are not telling you, well, how will I know that the medication is working? What symptoms am I looking for? And a big one that's really easy to spot is if I say, okay, I'm giving you this medication for sleep. If you're getting more sleep, then it's working, right? If you're not getting any sleep, then maybe it's not working or maybe we're not targeting the type of symptom. Another symptom that I want to say that is often misdiagnosed too is when a patient comes in and says that they're anxious. Their anxiety can be from a variety of different things. It could be that I'm in a social situation, I'm paranoid because there's, I feel like people are talking about me or I feel like there's just too many people around me, you know? Or it could be that they actually are hearing things um, that maybe even when they go into a crowd that they didn't know that was there before. So I've had instances where if a patient tells me I'm anxious and I'm giving them anxiety medications and nothing is working, sometimes I'll even do like a little bit of an antipsychotic just to say like, let me see if maybe they are experiencing some type of psychosis that they're not able to verbalize to me yet. And sure enough, those patients where I've tried a million different anxiety medications and I give them just a little bit of an antipsychotic and I ask them, well, how's your anxiety? They come back and they say, oh, it's better. So it's, it's a very complicated treatment regimen when you think about patients who have schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, and even honestly, even bipolar disorder, because we know one of the main neurotransmitters implicated in these disorders is dopamine. And dopamine is the same neurotransmitter that is implicated when patients are abusing drugs. So it's hard sometimes. Sometimes I'll have a patient that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And it wasn't necessarily that they had bipolar, it was that they were using drugs and it just was never discovered or, you know, it's just one of those things that kind of flew under the radar. And I'll have patients too that might be on like really, really heavy doses of medications. And then we discover, oh, well, they were abusing cocaine or they were abusing some type of drug. And then they're no longer on any of those bipolar disorders. One other caveat that I also wanted to mention too, that's a uh, new and emerging thing that I'm seeing more and more in practice is what they call cannabis-induced psychosis. And I hear patients, I mean, you can get a medical marijuana card, okay, but a lot of people don't realize that marijuana is a mild hallucinogen, which means that it can cause you to see things and hear things, right? 
And if you are already predisposed for something like schizophrenia, and then you take marijuana, and especially if you're getting it off the streets where they can lace it with other things, you can end up having what they call a cannabis-induced psychosis. And I've had quite a few patients, unfortunately, that come in with cannabis-induced psychosis. And sometimes I have patients that realize it, that, yeah, I think I'm a little off the wall when I smoke cannabis. And um, I notice when I pull back a little bit, it's not so bad. And then other patients, they'll say, well, it's what calms me. I feel like it's the only thing that works. And so again, they're an active member of their treatment team, right? So I will leverage with them that, hey, instead of doing this tonight, how about you try this and see if that helps you sleep? Another substance that we also gets overlooked is alcohol. So sometimes you'll have a patient that is using alcohol to help them sleep. And it's always what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Are they drinking alcohol because they have an underlying bipolar disorder and they're trying to treat it with that? Or is it a matter of, well, they've been using alcohol and now they've developed symptoms of bipolar? There's really no specific way of telling. But again, my approach has been with my patients is to actively involve them in their treatment because a lot of times this paternalistic approach where you do as I say, and this is what you need to do, doesn't always work. And um, especially if you're dealing with young adults where they're like, this is my life, I get to make my decisions you know, you always have to kind of include them. And another thing that I just wanted to mention in terms of finding care, involuntary hospitalization, it can be done, yeah, if you call the police and all that, nobody wants to call the police, but you may want to Google in your area to see if there is something called a mobile crisis team where the team comes to your location or wherever you think that your loved one might be, because sometimes they're not necessarily with you, they might be in their apartment or whatever. And it sends a team over there that are, are trained, that has a social worker on it, all of that. And they are able to bring the crisis down and see if they need to bring them to treatment. So sometimes that's a lot less scary than saying to um, call the police. Other two ways that you can also get a, a loved one into treatment if they're um, in crisis is what they call an ex parte, which is where you file, there's forms that you fill out with the courts. And it's not anything that means oh they're arrested or anything like that. It just means that as a, a friend can do it, ex parte, a friend could even ex parte someone that, hey, I've been noticing that they've been really paranoid or they've become irritable. I've been, you know, this has been going on for two weeks now, a month or whatever. And it's literally just petitioning the courts to say, hey, can we please bring my family member into treatment to be evaluated to see if they are okay? And that's what an ex parte is. And in all honesty, an involuntary hospitalization means the same thing, that you just want your family member, whoever, to be evaluated to make sure that they're okay. And um, after the evaluation, they can be released or they might say, no, 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 they actually do need treatment and they can keep them there for three, four days or even more. And even for substance abuse treatment, if you have a family member that you're concerned about that, I think they're abusing drugs and they really need to get into treatment and they're refusing, you can also do what is called, at least here in Florida, it's called a Marchman Act. And it's similar to a Baker Act in that you are asking for them to be evaluated um, the difference is a Marchman Act is for substance use disorders and like the Baker Act is for mental health. And the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration also has what is called a treatment locator. So if you go online if, and you Google um, SAMHSA, S is in SAM, A-M-H, S is in SAM-A, SAMHSA 
treatment locator um, that'll also connect you or give you, based on where you live, uh, places for mental health treatment and also substance use treatment as well. And you can also call those locations as well and ask them, hey, do you guys have a mobile crisis team? Any suggestions on how I can get my loved one into treatment and so forth? They even have telemedicine options these days too. So if you have a loved one that is hesitant about treatment, they might be more open to getting treatment if they can talk to someone via the computer. At least it's baby steps, right? It's all about planting the seed and seeing where it can take you. And then primary care providers too, like your family doctor, they also have a lot of what we are calling integrated care treatment. So what that means is at your family doctor's place, um, they may also have a psych provider that they consult with or that is on their treatment team as well, who can see the patient if they are concerned about mental health and so forth. So why is that important? A lot of times, nobody wants to go to a community mental health center that has a big old sign, community mental health. They're like looking around, like, I hope nobody saw me <laughs> go and get to community mental health. So they have now these, these integrated care models where if I'm just going to my family doctor and I have depression, I have bipolar disorder, I have schizophrenia, and I, I want treatment, they're like, okay, great. We'll just go to the room to, over to the corner and we have a psych provider that can evaluate you and see you. So that's another thing that that's picking up steam too, and is actually getting a lot of grant funding for as well. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. And my last point, and then I'll turn it over to you guys because I'm sure you have a few questions for me, is caregivers. Like, take time for yourself. It's, I, I, my heart breaks every time when I meet like a parent or a, a grandma, a wife, whomever it is, girlfriend, whoever, that are just so tired. They're tired because they're like, I've, I feel like I've tried everything. I kind of feel helpless, hopeless, and I'm just so concerned about my loved one, but I can't get them into treatment. And I want to say that there's hope. I've had patients before that the caregiver never gave up, but at the same time, I want you to take care of yourself too. You know, there's no harm in, you know, I'm going to join a support group. And, and obviously you guys are all here, right? <laughs> so that's the step one, right? And it's, it's helpful to be around people that are, are supportive of that and not being judgmental, you know, because it can make you feel like, did I do something wrong? And like I said, nine times out of 10 <laughs> of patients that I'm seeing, they come from loving, supporting families and families that want to see them do better, but it's like, they can't, they don't know what to do. And so I'm just saying that, in those same stories and those same instances, I've also seen a lot of success. And so a big part of it is finding a provider that is willing to be actively engaged in that process and considering all of the different factors. And there's no right, wrong way of how this, go how this happens, because I've had patients, even with schizophrenia, if you didn't know, patients who have their first psychotic break, it's usually in their 20s. And so... A lot of times it's when the kids go off to college. I've had a couple couple students that had like 
basketball scholarships, baseball scholarships, went off to college their first semester, and the stress from everything just exacerbated those symptoms of schizophrenia. Now the parents like, I'm so confused. Like <laughs> my brilliant child is displaying these symptoms. What is going on? Or I had one girl that was like from Japan and she was on a scholarship and it was her first semester and had a psychotic break. And she was in the inpatient stabilization unit. And we had to call her parents and say, hey, your child like had a psychotic break on, in her dorm and she's in the hospital. And her parents were so confused. Parents had to fly in. It was a big old meeting. The school even sent a representative off because she really had a really, really bad psychotic break. So it's, it's, it's a village, right? And even that, that young girl, she's okay now. So it's like, it's just a matter of not giving up because there is hope. And just, I hope that from me speaking with you today, if you were feeling like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know if this will ever get better. It will. And you're in the right place at the right time speaking to the right people. And there's hope. And even with schizophrenia, research is now, I, I'm up when I, I got the Volunteer of the Year Award for that organization, they're very big proponents on trying to get schizophrenia reclassified as a brain illness instead of a mental health disorder. Because realistically, a lot of the medications that we even use in treating schizophrenia, like we'll use even like cogentin or artane for tremors that can happen from taking a lot of these antipsychotic medications that are lowering dopamine because this, the hypothesis or the guess is that really high levels of dopamine can cause people to see things, hear things like I mentioned. And with schizophrenia, they're really trying to get it to be reclassified as a brain illness because they're seeing in a lot of research studies that it's so similar to what you may see in dementia and what you may see even as the symptoms that will be exhibited in a lot of the different things like schizophrenia of all the disorders, you can really do a brain scan and see in those patients that their third ventricle of the brain is a little larger. So they're trying to say that it's more, there's more to it than what we think we understand. And they're hoping if we can get it reclassified as a brain illness, then it would increase more funding for patients who have it and also get rid of as much stigma, right? Because a lot of these patients come in and they're like, I don't want to take that medication. I'm not crazy. Or, and I always tell my patients that if you had diabetes, you want to just stop taking your medications, right? You know, if you have heart disease or you have high blood pressure, you're not just going to stop taking your medication. This is a lifelong like treatment, right? So um, I a lot of times I tell the patients that and they feel better because again, it's normalizing the illness and not, oh, it's such a bad, oh my goodness, I have schizophrenia. It's the worst thing that ever, you know, I could ever happen to me and all of that. And I have a lot of patients that are doing really, really well. And a lot of college students doing really, really well that honestly, years ago, their parents would have been like, I don't know if they're going to make it. I don't know if they're ever going to get treatment, but they're doing okay. So that's all I have to say, <laughs> but I'll open the floor um, to you guys. Hi, uh, Dr. Smith. First of all, I just want to say thank you. And I wish that um, my mother could have come to you over the years. So I have two questions. One is kind of general and it's about medication and okay. just in general, are there long-term health side effects? Like, does it affect your heart um, or other areas of your body if you take it over time? And then I have a very specific question about a drug, let's say it's lithium. Mm -hmm. um, so drugs that could be considered toxic. And if you want to titrate somebody off of a drug like a lithium, is mm -hmm. there a difference between 
generic versus the name brand whereby you could take somebody off of lithium and say put them on quote like a brand Zyprexa is there a difference between the generic and the non-generic where you can avoid being on some of the more potentially toxic uh, medications very very good question so first thing um, are these medications over time can it be harmful let's start with just antipsychotic medications because there's there's so many different <laughs> segments right so antipsychotic medications there's two categories there's what we call a typical antipsychotic, which are like our old school, they call them the old school. So it's like Haldol, Thorazine, those are like our old school. And the newer school medications, which were, were called atypical antipsychotics are like your Seroquel, your Abilify, your Zyprexa, all of that. The biggest side effects in terms of the two medications, uh, the typical antipsychotics, like your Haldol, your Thorazine, the biggest thing is tremors. So a lot of times you'll see patients say, I'm allergic to that because it causes <laughs> tremors. And then another, the atypical, the biggest is metabolic side effects. Now, based on the medication, because there's such a range of them, some of them have higher emphasis on side effects than others. So um, something like a Latuda or something like a Bilify and Vega, they might not cause as many metabolic side effects. And when I say metabolic, I'm referring to high cholesterol. I'm referring to high blood sugar. That's what they're known for, the atypical antipsychotic medications. But the biggest way that we get around that is you draw labs. You do a baseline lab, which when they first start them on the medication, they're supposed to take a look at what their labs are. And then six months, they take a look at it. And then annually. So I have patients on these medications that the known side effects are the metabolic side effects for the atypical, or even the patients that are on Haldol or Thorazine, where we know that they may develop tremors. And that's really just because it's when you have high dopamine levels, we're trying to lower it. In Parkinson's, when you when they don't have enough dopamine, that's what causes them to shake. And that's why they give them like carbidopa, levodopa, because we're increasing their dopamine levels to not make them shake. So you see that's like a weird dichotomy with trying to decrease dopamine and increase dopamine because it, it's, it's such a powerful neurotransmitter. So the concern really in terms of is there, you know, side effects? Yes. All medications in general have side effects, but the way we overcome that is to keep monitoring their labs. And I've had patients where, oh, if they developed high cholesterol or if they developed high blood sugar, I adjust their meds as, as, as needed. But a lot of times they're okay. They don't even really require me to adjust it because I'm continuously monitoring it. So I hope that whoever your provider is, is monitoring their, their labs. Lithium. Lithium is just a salt. <laughs> I wish I could say that it was a, a funny, a fun medication. It's just a salt and it's a salt that competes with sodium channel receptors because it's a salt sodium, meaning that um, if a patient um, eats a lot of potato chips or they're not drinking enough water, it competes with it because lithium is a salt and, you know, potato chips have a lot of salt in it. So it's always a balancing act. We always tell those patients, make sure that you're drinking enough water because you can become what they call toxic. And again, your provider should be monitoring your lab results for that. Also, a quick tidbit about that is it matters what time of the day that they draw the labs. So if, they, if a patient took lithium and then went and got their labs drawn, it'll come back on the lab to make it seem like they're toxic and they're not. How you would know that they're toxic, they may have slurred speech, they may not be able to walk. A lot of times they may have ringing in the ears. You'll know that, they're, I mean, when I've had a patient, I've had maybe in my whole career, maybe one patient that was toxic 
And that's, and that's exactly how the patient presented. They weren't able to walk. They're like, I don't know what happened with my balance. Like I just go off. And it, it just a quick thing. One of the beauties about lithium, aside from it being one of our go-tos for bipolar one disorder, it has anti-suicidal effects. Lithium and clozaril are the two most studied medications. Clozaril is like our last resort antipsychotic medication. Those are the only two medications that have been studied so much to have anti-suicidal effects. So I, I, I mean, yes, the toxicity, the chance for that is there, but I've even had that one patient that she um, became toxic on it and then it scared her. She's like, I want off of it. I want off of it. I lowered her dose to as low as I could possibly keep it, but didn't take her completely off of it because of the anti-suicidal effects. Because initially she got really scared. She's like, take me off of it. Take... And I did. And then she got really back into depression and she was like, I haven't felt this depressed in a while. And I said, okay, well, let's just give you a little bit of it. Now, you know that, Hey, you have to drink water. You have to, and especially I live in Florida, so it's always hot. <laughs> so it's just one of those things, but it's a beautiful medication. And I've had patients even say, gosh, I wish that my provider had discovered this medication a long time ago because of that anti-suicidal effect of it. Generic versus name brand. A question that uh, patients say all the time, and again, it's based on their stories because I've had patients swear up and down that the name brand worked better than the generic, but there's not really any evidence necessarily to say that, but I always listen to my patients. So if you tell me, no, 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 I cannot take the generic, the name brand works, I'm going to keep you on the name brand. And if I have to do a, um, what they call like a prior authorization for it, because maybe the insurance company is saying that I just put that the patient has bad effects when they're on the generic. And it, it's possible per se, because sometimes there's different dyes that they put in the medication, you know, all that stuff. But I always, again, listen to my patients because they're going to be more than likely to take the medication if they feel you're listening to them, you know? So, some, you know, we don't know everything. So it's highly possible that, you know, maybe there is something to this, but that's a common question that I get asked. Do I do generic or name brand? It's whatever works for that patient. But I've had, I've had patients say that. And now Zyprexa, Zyprexa, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's Zyprexa causes so much weight gain. I've had patients put on like 20 pounds in like two weeks on Zyprexa. But the beauty of Zyprexa is it works quickly and it's the only medication that is chemically similar to Clozaril. So remember, Clozaril is like the last result in um, medication. As if nothing works, we put them on Clozaril. Um, but Zyprexa is chemically similar to Clozaril. The only difference that we do between them is Clozaril requires you to get weekly labs because of a risk of what we call agranulocytosis, meaning that it can potentially lower your ability to fight infection. So you have to monitor your labs all the time for that. And patients can get really annoyed about it because when you start off on it, it's every week, then it can become every two weeks and it's every month. And you literally can't even pick up your prescription unless you get your labs done for Clozaril. So what I'll do is if a patient's really having a tough time and I know that Zyprexa packs a punch, um, I'll put them on like a Zyprexa and just monitor their labs. And again, just watch like their any weight gain or anything like that. But a lot of patients feel like it works really, really well. And, and again, it makes sense because it's so chemically similar to that last resort medication called um, Clozaril. So I hope that answered your question. I have a question. Do you think parents should request genetic testing for the antipsychotic drugs to help with the dosing up front? especially given that it takes time to find the right balance for each child? And if so, what do we as parents need to do to have it covered? 
So very good question. Again, it depends on your provider. Some providers take offense when you're like, um, can we do the genetic testing? And then other providers are like, okay, no problem. Like we might not do it right now, but let me try this medication or let me try this medication. If it doesn't work, then we'll do the genetic testing. And you as a parent can also say that too. Like, hey, I was doing some research on GeneSight testing. That's just the name of the company, GeneSight and Genomine. That's another company that does it. I was doing some research on it and I really, really would like to do this for my child. The company even, if you go on their website, you could type in your zip code and it'll tell you which providers will do it. Because it's really, it's, it's like a lab order. Just like when you do all your other labs, it's a lab order because they literally just swipe your mouth and put it in a little bag and send it to their laboratory. So you can go to your provider and just ask them, hey, would you be willing to order this lab for me? And if not right now, hey, after we try a, a drug, we'll do it your way. We'll try it. But then after that, can we do it? Because on the form, when we're filling it out as a provider to order that lab, it actually will ask, well, what medications have you tried already? So it, it'll give them some help if you, if you if you give a little and say, hey, okay, I'll try a medication. That didn't work. Okay, now let's do the gene site testing, please. I really, it would really mean a lot to me if we could do that. And a lot of providers are like, okay. Now in terms of getting it covered, you could just call the company directly. The company will, they have a 1-800 number. And the key thing, especially with gene site testing, it's called the compassionate care program. So you just ask them, hey, how much would it cost me out of pocket if I apply for the compassionate care? And they'll tell you, oh, it's $25 or it's on a sliding scale. You have to like send that you can't pay for it. And a lot of the parents will say, my child can't pay. I might be able to pay for it, but my child can't pay for it. So they'll say, okay, the child doesn't have the money to pay for it. And they'll do it like they'll give it to them for free. And the key with that is the applications, they usually process that at the beginning of the month. So you're more likely to get it done really quickly if you do it at the beginning of the month. These are tricks and, and true, tried and true tricks just to be working in community mental health because a lot of patients in community mental health may not have insurance. So we always figure it out different ways to get them you know, access to care. So I love the fact that I've had community mental health experience because it's helped me now even in my own practice. So I hope that answered your question. So fantastic. Thank you. No problem. There are two people that have put in the chat is asking a question about vaping and how different it is versus edibles or smoking THC. She says, I've heard that there are different levels of substances from CBD to THC that can be yes. baked. Yes. They're both not necessarily great, but if you had to pick one or the other, if you have a child that's doing both. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent points. And it sounds like you are very familiar with what, because a lot of parents don't even know that vaping, like the jewel and all that has nicotine in it. They think, that, oh, it's not nicotine, it's just, you know, it's hard because that's another controversial topic too, in that a lot of organizations will use vaping as a harm reduction, meaning that, oh, it's better for them to do vaping than to smoke cigarettes or do marijuana or whatever. But then the CDC put out a few years ago that there was a type of lung condition that occurred from vaping because you're putting like heated water or vapes in, into your system. And then there's also the various flavors that can be harmful. Like I know cinnamon actually can like really harm the internal lining of the lungs. So there's even research studies that go based off of the flavorings alone. So it's really hard to say one way or the other. There's really no organization specifically that is gung-ho about vaping. So much so that there's, I know in California, they even put a law that now you have to be like 21 to even vape. And 
for those of you who might not be familiar with what vaping um, entails, it, they have like these little, it looks like a little USB. And a lot of these teens will hide it, go to school, you don't even know what it is, and they're vaping. And I've had patients or parents that come back and say that, oh, my teen is really, really irritable and I don't know what it is. And it ends up being that they're having nicotine withdrawal. You didn't know that they were vaping and the vapes have nicotine in it. And a lot of times the content in it is even sometimes higher than what you would find in cigarettes. So it's hard to say to say, okay, one's better than the other. They, they kind of all are vices. Um, my, my best answer to that would be trying to get it to the lowest amount. So whether that be cannabis that they're smoking or vaping that they're smoking or whatever, trying to get it to the lowest amount. And there's programs that help to assist with that. It's called, I know here in um, Florida, it's called Tobacco Free Florida. And I'm sure that they have like nationwide support too, um, where they'll actually send free lozenges, free gum, nicotine gum. I don't think they'll give you free patches, but they, they have so many different ways to help reduce the amount of nicotine that you're using, whether you're vaping, whether you're smoking cigarettes. So that might be something to look into. Whatever it is that their vice is, I would say trying to get them to do as little of it as possible. And as sometimes with my patients, what I'll do is if you're having trouble sleeping, take this medication instead of doing this. And a lot of times I can convince them, even if that meant okay, maybe they're only smoking three times out of the seven days a week. Hey, I'll take that versus every day of the week. Does that make sense? So it's, it's always a bargaining. Someone has written in and has this question. My son is a young adult and he's been hospitalized six or seven times. Every time he goes in the hospital, he comes out with a new diagnosis. The most recent is that he's autistic. He's been on antipsychotics. He's been on antidepressants. He's been on sleep medication. And there just doesn't seem to be an answer. What is your advice? Well, I will say this, that don't give up. There's a provider out there that is going to be willing to take that ride with you. And there is hope on the other side. You just need a provider that is going to be willing to take a look at his entire um, medical record. Like a lot of times that I've, I've noticed with patients that have even come to me, nobody's reading their notes. Nobody's reading their history. They're just going based off of what's presented to them and giving them whatever medication at the time. And if you, they look, just took a little bit of time to get a, a request of their records and read what, what's been done in the past, how their symptoms are presenting in the past, it goes such a long way because you'll even see, okay, well, when he was being, you know, doing pretty good, what was, what were, what was going on at that time? What was he doing at that time? What was, what was going on in his life at that time? Again, it goes back to the social determinants of health that I was mentioning, where it's not, it hurts my heart to hear, oh, he's not trying hard enough as if like some, as if it's, it's all on him, you know what I mean? And in some ways it's, it involves him, but there's, it's, it's other factors to help him get better. Um, and so what I, I would say is keep looking for a provider, maybe even look into a psych nurse practitioner <laughs> that is willing to take the time and really look through his records. And if you can, or if he's willing to get the records if you don't already have them um, and let you come with him to that appointment, or even if it's a telemedicine appointment to explain that this is what has been done. 
This is what had worked. This was what was going on at that time so that they can get a better picture. Because I guarantee you nine times out of 10, if you look at the whole treatment cycle of what was going on, there was something there that was consistent or something that really hasn't changed much, but it was overlooked because, oh, that's how he was presenting to me at that time. So this is what's going to, this is what you need to give him. And this is, oh, he's not taking it. Oh, it's all on him. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. So um, don't give up hope, you know, until you find that right provider. And then guess what? When you do find the right provider that's willing to go to bat and not say, oh, he's not trying that hard enough and not, and that looks at the bigger picture, you'll be even more grateful. Like, wow, I'm happy that I stuck through and I found that provider that was willing to work with, with my son. Okay, wonderful. Well, we are just, this could go on for another hour. I just really can't thank you enough. Um, I, I found uh, Dr. Marie Smith East on Twitter. She was being um, awarded and being honored um, for this seemed um, the work you've been doing in the community. So just the fact that I reached out and you immediately responded, you're so personable and just a wealth of information. So we look forward to hopefully having you back if you'll have us. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll close on out with a prayer. Thank you so, so, so much for being here. And, oh, thank uh, you for having me. Really appreciate that. And we will be having you back, hopefully. So thank oh, you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities? Who healeth all thy diseases? Who redeemeth thy life from destruction? who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. We thank you, Lord, for the divine connection with Dr. Marie Smith East, Lord. We are so grateful that she has a heart for giving and serving others. We thank you that you appointed her to serve as a thought leader and expert for such a time as this. For the Sunrise community, she is definitely in the right place at the right time. And we trust that you will honor her acts of service. Lord, we ask for your wisdom and guidance today. Some of our children are already in a treatment facility or under the care of a medical professional. Others are in and out of treatment. Some don't want treatment at all. Some are using cannabis or other substances in the hopes of feeling well. Some parents don't wanna involve others in the fear of their loved ones being put into the system or the fear of being murdered at the hands of the police. So Lord, we ask that you meet each family where they are today. Give them a heart to hear and listen and absorb the practical insights that we received from our esteemed Dr. Smith East today. Soften their hearts to be willing to receive new insights and make different choices starting this week. Please go before us, Lord. We ask that your angels will protect and cover our loved ones. We trust in you, Lord, with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. You said in your word, in all thy ways, submit to you and you will make our path straight. You also said the wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. Help us to be wise today and with prayer and supplication, make the choices that are best for our loved ones. And Lord, we give you thanks today for you are good. Your mercy endureth forever and ever, and we ask for your guidance and blessings in your son Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for being here again. Dr. Smith, peace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Really appreciate your words, your wisdom. Um, we'll be back next week, everyone. Have a beautiful day.
I'm Kelly Richardson Lawson, and you've been listening to the Sunrise Project podcast. You can follow Sunrise wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, open your podcast app and follow this show. Join us next week for another gathering of support. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental wellness challenges, contact your doctor, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or both. You can reach NAMI's helpline at 800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or email at info at Volunteers are working to answer questions, offer support, and provide practical next steps. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.